BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Hello, dear patrons. This is, of course, BungaCast with Philip Cunliffe. Hello. George Hoare. Hey. And myself, Alex Hochuli. And this is another Alpha Bonus Bonus. If you're new to the podcast, if, and especially if you're new to, uh, to our subscriber content, this is where we deal with your questions and comments and posts, uh, which we've received over the past uh, month or two months, um, and discuss them, um, which is what we're going to do here. Um, so we've got actually a lot to get through because last one we did was in early December. Um, so plenty to get through, lots of comments, um, lots of episodes which generated a bit of controversy or things that you liked, things that you did like, didn't like. So um, yeah, let's get cracking. Um, we're going to start back to front. Uh, we're going to start with the last alpha bonus bonus uh, from December of last year, number 307. So Richard R. firstly says, um, in reference to a discussion that we had on that episode about um, escalating plunder, about the role of the state in helping capital um, effectively claim resources or um, capture parts of production into, uh, you know, and privatize it. Um, So one uh, claim made by David Harvey or a David Harveyite claim that seems unaddressed, Richard R. says, is that the plunder is in large part the privatization of things like schools that have already gone through the process of capitalist commodification and then socialization into publicly owned schools. Um, so that is to say they're private schools and then they become um, public schools, you know, they become um, nationalized, I guess. Uh, so it's less a new market and not a new commodity. It would be especially curious how this fits in with Phil's claim that daycare has been effectively socialized. Is BungaCast officially a piece with the Democratic Party? Is everything government-owned socialist now? Um, Phil, if you want to respond so, to that, but also parse yeah. that a little bit. Well, it's... Um, so, uh, in answer to Richard, BungaCast is definitely not a piece with the Democratic Party. Alex probably is, and George might well be a sleeper for the Democratic <laughs> Party, but I am definitely not. I can assure you, Richard, that um, I do not believe that everything government-owned is socialist. It's not what I, I didn't actually say uh, daycare had been socialized. Um, what I said was the family has been socialized. So the idea of some revolt against the patriarchal nuclear family is meaningless in the context in which you have women having ready access to the labor market, having um, you know rights to inherit prop- to inherit property, um, and that their rights are defended in divorce courts and whatnot, and generally have achieved, you know, in substantive measure, particularly once you pass, you know, break up the kind of demographic generational cohorts, you know, um, women of but a certain cutoff have achieved, um, you know, effective equality with men in most spheres. And so in that context, the idea of this patriarchal authoritarian family doesn't make any sense. And part of that is that you have childcare, right? I mean, my point was that Childcare is socialized, by which I mean family, the care of the child is socialized, not that daycare is something which is, you know, a harbinger of a socialist future. Uh, doubtless, like, you know, what we call childcare in the UK or daycare in the US, doubtless, you know, it could be funded better, 
it could be made free, it could be improved in all sorts of ways. But the basic proposition was that the raising child rearing has effectively already been socialized. That was it. Yeah, not the provision of of the service. Yeah, and I think it's also a good, um, I mean, it should, I, I've been guilty of this, of using the term commodification sometimes for things or, or you know, it's been decommodified or commodified, referring to things which maybe, for example, like the National Health Service, which is free at the point of service. It, it's not, doesn't mean that it's not a commodity. Um, you know, it's that it's subsidized yeah, I mean, by, you know, or that there's the supply chain is fully commoditized. There's people buying and selling goods and services. It's just that at the point of the point that you consume that service, it is something which has been subsidized by some other element of production, I guess. Yeah. I and mean, in my reading of a lot of, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what Richard has in mind, but my reading say of the, you know, development of kind of um, mass schooling, uh, across the developed world isn't one that you know that kind of became it was private and then became socialized and now is being kind of privatized again that's not the way i understood it as in a gen you know as i don't think you could generalize at that level on the develop or across the developed world i have a i have a zizekian point it may be like sub zizekian but you can have a decommodified commodity this this makes sense right that something which is is still a commodity has the like the, the aura of having been decommodified and then that can subsequently be recommodified so you can have like a recommodified decommodified commodity that would be my um such my as... response such as um healthcare that has that is a commodity and then is decommodified by being socially provisioned and then is is privatized afterwards or like public utilities in in britain you don't seem convinced, Alex, but I mean, I, mean, I, I think... I think we can just maybe, call it privatization and, and, and be done with it. Okay. Maybe that's simpler. Yeah, um, maybe that's better. A kind of related point actually comes from Andrea. Um, and here is where the argument about the expropriation of capitalists by other capitalists would come in place, argues Andrea. If we would assume that a wide array of welfare state industries and services were effectively just mediated kinds of capitalist enterprises organized by the state, and that the gratuity, so things being provided free, of the commodities um, were actually just a mere mediated way of producing and distributing things made under the wage relation in a capitalist society, then the privatization of those industries and institutions have actually been expropriated from one capitalist by another. So, in a sense, what Harveyites think of as accumulation by dispossession in Western countries would actually be a recurring and structural feature of capitalism. It's just that it's not in the moralistic way it's been for, put forward by many. Um, yeah, I think I think, think Andre is yeah. yeah. It's very it's a very clever it's a very clever insight, and I suspect it's probably I suspect it's probably right about a lot of this discussion. In fact, okay, so um, we're going to move on uh, to the episode three hundred eight. This is also from December last year, a balance sheet of the left, which is where we read this long essay. From by Jordan Therborn on um, basically the state of the left in the 21st century. Uh, there was also an article which we put in the links, which was there for discussion, was one by Perry Anderson, um, which had been written back in 2000. Um, and in reference to both of those, Eli says, is there a conflation being made between strategy and goals in the Therborn and Artisan Anderson articles? I've seen a number of millennial left self-critiques that say in so many words that all the goals and projects of the left were perfectly fine. 
and the only thing to critique were the tactics and strategies that allowed the perfect project to fail. Uh, Eli says he's thinking here of Ben Burgess's post-Bernie self-criticisms of the Democratic Socialists of America. It has the flavor of the left cannot be wrong, only be wronged. Um, and so this is also, you know, kind of discussed in the context of the idea that the millennial left failed to overcome, supposedly, the challenges and setbacks that the new left suffered. So no, no real deeper questioning of whether the new left's goals should be the left's goals today. Yeah, I think this or is were indeed spot with on. the correct ones back then. Yeah, I think this is spot on by Eli um, that the you know there is kind of a tendency. I do, I don't think it's to be fair. I suppose um, I don't think it's specific to the left. I think that there is a tendency to, in fact, the way in which we normally talk about strategy. Um, well, I say we, not we on BungaCast, but we as kind of uh, the public as a whole. The way in which strategy is talked about tends to, in fact, conflate. Uh, tactics and strategy, whether that be um, when it's talked about in military operational terms or even in business terms or political terms, nobody seems to know the difference, I think, between those different levels. And I think um, Eli is right, in fact, that the, um, you know, it's kind of, and this is, I mean, the point, this is what frustrates me about so many of these discussions. When they talk about leftist strategy, it's basically, you know, post-grad students you know, moving around imaginary pieces on a board like Hitler in his bunker, you know, imaginary armies that actually bear no correspondence to anything in the real world, as if there are, you know, kind of as if little chess pieces of organized kind of unions or political parties that have some kind of relationship with each other across borders. And they're talking about leftist strategy as if they're the ones in a position to move these pieces. When the pieces don't exist, you know, nobody knows what the game is. And, um, you know, what are the goals, you know, like, are they to simply kind of um, fulfill the, to make good the failures of the new left or, you know, or something else, something that goes beyond that. So the failure to kind of differentiate and clarify the difference between goals and strategy, I think that is, um, you know, does bedevil um, those who think of themselves as on the left. And it's not accidental. I'm not so sure I agree. I think the there is an extent to which the goals and the projects like were right. I don't think it was <clears throat> like if you think that these were the correct expression of the class interests of the people in the kind of millennial left. And so it's like, yeah, they were correct. They were the correct things and that people in, from that in that cl class will continue to want those things. So why would you change that? Right. And so it has to be something other than the goals and the projects that's the problem and i think looking internally <clears throat> um is 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 right but it's the contradictions of the project of the class contradictions of the project rather than the faders in in sort of strategy or tactics or you know how to achieve the goals if you want to put it in more uh, in less military um way but yeah i think um there is i wouldn't completely disagree with eli's point though there is you know you do have that it can't be it can't be the things that we wanted that are wrong it must be the world or something else that's wrong yeah i well, i mean i would so well but look i mean i think the you know you've got to start from somewhere right so the fact that the the people who constitute the current left um you know the bernie bros and um all of that the kind of dsa and um all of the you know that kind of um urban millennial new left um that was the constituency for bernie and corbyn 
obviously they've got like a political interest, right? I mean, you know, that would be it would be um it would be wrong to think that they don't. But the fact that they never rise above their political interests, the fact that they're never they were never able to sustain a political project that was you know could could um, sustain kind of electoral coalitions with the traditional working class voters of the Democrats and the Labour Party respectively, you know that speaks to the fact that they failed to clarify whether or not their own goals and how far their own kind of specific goals were simply expressions of their material interests or whether they went any further. Yeah. So I mean I don't I don't yeah. I don't think you can criticize them for having kind of you know class-based interests but the f- failure to clarify what their goals could and should be and this is where you know kind of their hostility to free political expression and their terror of rocking the boat and upsetting a con- you know ideological consensus. Um, got in the way of that kind of basic political task of trying to understand what they wanted and what they could offer to others. Yeah. No, I yeah. think that's right. I, I mean, even if it if it meant the state of being, you know, explicit in saying, well, we want social democracy, you know, the claims of democratic socialism, whatever that is, should be um, put to one side. Um, and to say, okay, well, that we can offer workers something that they, that, that, it, that is a genuinely popular policy like Medicare for all. Um, but the, the inability to reckon with the fact that all of the kind of, um, you know, woke bureaucratic preening um, and um, other kind of pr- uh, pursuits like didn't didn't kind of sit together with those, you know, and then couldn't be realistic about what was possible, even strategically, even in that narrow aim, um, whatever you might think of trying to kind of, um, you know, bring in kind of social democratic reforms and what the possibilities of that are. Okay, so... Uh, Moving on, well, we're still still on this episode actually about the balance sheet of the left. Um, JK, JK, JK says that Phil seriously underestimates how consistently and openly anti-democratic the Republican Party is. Um, it's not a defense of the status quo um, because the status quo is in fact largely a product of the Republican Party when it comes to electoral procedure and legislative procedure. So, for example, filibusters, courts, uh, reliance on the courts, gerrymandering, etc. Uh, the Republicans are consistently minoritarian and deeply unpopular party. I understand that the Democratic Party is veering towards its own form of authoritarianism and dangerous alliances with big tech and mass media, but it can't be underestimated how much of this is them knowing that if they take the boot off the Republican Party's neck, they could be thrown into a situation where the Republican Party can assert its agenda um, and be anti-majoritarian simply by clinging on to power in the institutions it has gained to its advantage. Yeah, so let me, um, I mean, I take, you know, I would agree with a lot of what JK, 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 JK says here. Um, So let me take the opportunity to um, set the record straight. Um, Perhaps I did bend the stick a bit too far in the the discussion to which um, they're referring to. And, you know, I won't deny that the Republican Party is part of the... um, you know, uh, all kind of conspiracy against the American people that is the duopolistic party system in the US. And that they indeed, you know, I mean, they cling, their readouts are the most anti-majoritarian institutions of the American state, the Supreme Court, the Senate, the um, Electoral College and what have you. So all of that is true, Um, you know, and I'm happy to concede it um, and should have perhaps, you know, said it in the original. The only place where I disagree with um where I disagree with JK, 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 is that the Democratic Party is veering towards its own form of authoritarianism. It's not veering towards it. It's very much there. Um, and it's not something new for the Democratic Party. I mean, you know, big tech certainly is. Big tech is new. 
but the Democratic Party has been, you know, I mean, it helped to build the deep security state in the Cold War era. You know, it's very much part of the, um, some of constructing and building and overseeing some of the most sinister um, aspects of the American state. Um, and it's not their, you know, it's not that they have their boot on the Republican Party's neck. They have their boot on working on the neck of working class Americans first and foremost. So that would be where I would um, take issue with JK, JK. But otherwise, I'm, you know, I'm willing to concede the the point they make. Um, you can't say deep state. I mean, that's really like conspiracy theory. Like, um, you know, the type of people who talk about the deep state. Like, I mean, is that what you're saying? Um, I think you have to delete that as a, a US-based editor recently told me. Um, this is a good opportunity to get out all our personal grievances against people, all the editors who told us to put in an extra clause or delete and, and ruin our writing. Um, no, I, th- I think this was a point that, if I remember correctly, Alex Gorovich made um, on one episode, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, that the Republican Party has got better and better at using these anti-democratic um, minoritarian methods of ruling that they're actually a pretty in terms of like statecraft and approach to the institutions you know that's a that's a playbook which they've had for a long time and <clears throat> it works well for them within the constraints of American politics and that's that is what they do I think that's you know if that's JK 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 I think there's three J's three K's there um if that's their point I think that's absolutely correct but I think the yeah this anti-fascism I, I can't remember exactly the context in which this was raised but I think that's not the same thing as, as fascism it's not it's not good but it's not fascism would be my conclusion so uh point. finally just on this episode a point addressed uh, more I guess to me um from Pap Szilard Istvan uh, Alex's formulation that the left is protecting representative democracy but adds some participatory elements suggests that the two principles are by default in harmony. I think that's wrong. All these deliberative and participatory kind of nonsense ideas are a cover for the left's profound unease and misunderstanding of the principle of representation, the meaning of the representative mandate, and so on. Or it's a manifestation of what George called moral minoritarianism and the inability to construct workable societal majorities. I think that yeah, I think that I think that's right. Um, I think they, I mean, they are sort of in conflict, but it's something that the left broadly doesn't reckon with. You know, it might, compl- uh, it might try to fight against sort of voter suppression in the U.S. Um, or defend you know democracy in Brazil or in Turkey or whatever. Um, but um, but yeah, there's also always this, I guess, this sprinkling of um, of a of a deliberate deliberative form of democracy kind of forming whatever, wanting to form its own little councils or have its say or um, have plebiscites Istvan, when it Istvan suits is them, to- Istvan is totally right. Alex is wrong on this. I'm happy to support <laughs> you, Istvan, against Alex. This is entirely all the left's bullshit about citizens' assemblies and participatory democracy is to cover the fact that they don't represent anyone and they're profound, they're in fact incapable of doing so. So you're right, Istvan. Well, no, but it's, I mean, it's, and it's opportunistic, right? I mean, it's a flitting between, no, we're defending representative democracy here without really recognizing what they're doing or or what the implications of that are. And then when they're backed into a corner, it's like, oh no, but we need to have a citizen's assembly because this isn't a legitimate institution and so on. Yeah. I'm, I'm against deliberative democracy because I don't, you know, I don't want to have to deliberate. I just want to get it done. I just want to get my voting done and as often as possible (laughs) and, you know, get on with the rest of my life. But no, I think the, the idea of participation, this would be my, my guess is this is going to 
um, <clears throat> you know, to, to link it to some of the other things that we talked about, if that's, if this is the post left populist um, trajectory, then part, the participatory city could be one thing which shoots up in popularity. Like how do you, instead of having like a, because democratic city is a strange formulation anyway, but how do you have these kind of proto or like replacement for democracy or um, political control ways to rebrand things? So, you know, this bits, you know, might be being a bit abstract there, but I think the, the particularly I, references no, but I, me, I think it's on the money. <laughs> no, but I think that, I think that's right. I mean, just to add on to that, I think the participatory element is more in striving of recognition and an overcoming of a sense of alienation to feel like you're being heard or you're doing something, you know, that you're, uh, you know, having talking to people and whatever, rather than a vision which would be rooted in, um, you know, producers' interests and trying to create a kind of producers' republic or whatever. In in terms of genuine participation in building and you know building and maintaining society as a whole, um, it's a kind of it's a bit of a fop, right? And it's a fop to oneself. Like, um, okay, you get a little bit of participation, you get to engage and whatever, and feel like you're 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 doing things without the actual possibility and reality and responsibility of actually seizing state power and, and transforming society. Hmm. I like the phrase a fop to oneself. It's like a room, <laughs> yeah. a room yeah. of one's own. Well, I guess if you have a room <laughs> of one's own, you can fop yourself. You can fop all your life. If, you, if, if that's your anyway. That's anyway. All right. Um, episode 309. This was one of the final episodes of, uh, it was the final episode, I think, of uh, this, of 2020. It was Sack of Potatoes with Anton Yeager, number 309. Um so, uh, firstly, Nigel B. Opinion says, did I hear Phil correctly? He didn't live in, quote unquote, the West until his undergrad. Where did he live? And uh, Chet and Temizurek, apologies for the pronunciation. Uh, I remember him mentioning something about Serbia once. I'm not too sure, though. Phil, account for yourself. Origin are you, story. Are you trying to? Are you trying to? Are you trying to claim some non-Western subaltern credential, which uh, which isn't yours? Always, Is this stolen valor? Always, always, always standing for the third world against its misrepresentation by the Brazilian mm. Latin American left. Um, <laughs> no, I think I should probably retain my my uh, credentials as a man of mystery and not indulge too much in discussing my my personal past. You and it's a bit, you know, it's. A <laughs> It's a bit it will not indulge in my in discussing my past. <laughs> it's a bit self-indulgent, you know. We're here to talk politics, not my not my personal biography, listeners. What can I say? Are you this really is exactly what exactly what the CIA agent would say. <laughs> you Are know, you really the biography is personal... completely blank, and then suddenly <laughs> my, materializes personal... on left wing circles. Um, <laughs> in my personal, and it's very disruptive history, in meetings, listeners. Yeah. in my personal history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, also John, John O'Rourdon says, I got an in real life girlfriend due to Bunga slash podcast fueled internet parasocial relationships. And we want to get a dog and name it Philip Cunliffe. So don't knock it too hard. That is don't knock podcasts and parasocial relationships. I'm hard. not going to knock them. And I'm I'm honored, you know, John, but if you really want to honor me, then you will name your firstborn son, Philip Cunliffe and maybe you know, so that would it's be a dog's true, name. You know, it's a dog's name. It's I don't boy know or girl. Suitable human. Yeah. <laughs> this is my, Actually, even this better, is my yes. daughter. Boy or girl. <laughs> boy or girl. You must name your firstborn child after me, John. And then I will be, you know, then I think that will be kind of to do true justice to what parasocial relationships have done for you. Thank you. 
Mm. But yeah, no, good, good, good to hear. Very happy for you, John. Um, Eli says, uh, the single weirdest thing I've seen, which I don't quite get, is people coming to religious occasions to meet boys or girls. Shabbat dinner in, a, in an orthodox environment, then go out to bars, clubs, or karaoke with your gang of gals and boys after. Very conservative to reactionary organizations acting as a social glue for a milieu of people who plainly don't care in the slightest about actually obeying religious commands, but do care about the pseudo-formality of the hosts. The counterpart events on the more secular end always end up being sort of cringe and targeted at a PMC crowd who absolutely always go home after the formal event instead of moving to informal socializing. Very, very weird. No idea why this polarization has taken shape. This isn't something that like I've observed at all, but um, and I don't know if this is something which is like just in, in Jewish circles specifically or more broadly. But I mean, if, to the extent that that might be a thing, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of um, I, I wonder whether that that kind of desire, even from kind of secular people to, for the kind of formal arrangements for socializing speaks to a lack of. I don't know, forms of rituals that we have. I mean, I the only thing that this brings to mind is a, a, a criticism that uh, Martin Hagland addresses in this life, which I'm currently reading. Of course, we're discussing this in the reading club. Um, more about that uh, to be announced, I think, tomorrow in terms of dates and et cetera. Um, but um, he, he makes this point in in a, in response to religious arguments that basically uh when people hold funerals they end up having you know christian ones even if they weren't christian um if you know if they were atheists um which shows that ultimately people have this desire for eternity or something and not really a commitment to this life to what he calls secular faith and so on and um he provides a response to that i have another response to it which is basically that that just speaks to a failure to develop secular traditions and rituals which are meaningful to us in our kind of atomized fragmented societies um where uh, and where you know ultimately the only moral claims made are subjective ones um and so i you know i think that speaks to that problem about you know in terms of um in terms of funerals and the lack of rights available to us to us secular people um but um but maybe there's something similar going on there that there's kind of the 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 being able to enter a sort of formal structure and rites and rituals that everybody knows and participate in them and then be kind of free from those to have fun afterwards um, kind of works for people in a way that the the kind mm. of secular ones, it's a little always a little bit awkward. Something which incidentally is captured in things like um, the office, particularly the UK office, where no one knows how to behave anymore, where the old um, you know, rigors and structures and um, forms of behavior, which were much more tightly prescribed, have broken down and it creates this very awkward mixture between public and private and no one really knows where the boundaries of one begin and the other end. Yeah, I think there is probably something to that. I think the, I don't find it all that strange, you know, young young people are horny and they want to, you know, meet meet people and um, you can spell that with two E's or an You know, young e and an A. So sad, the, sad and forlorn about it. The um, back in the day, no, but the I guess the that there is a serious point that you're making there, Alex. That maybe young people are drawn to more formal like social events because the rules are clearer, and that is in some ways easier, or the anxiety is more managed or more f structured. Whereas the fewer the rules, there's, you know, it's more tyrannical and everything then is suddenly being checked for multiple meanings. And it's like, okay, you do the religious bit and then you do the other bit. And it's like, okay, this is kind of, kind of clear what I'm supposed to be doing. 
and you can sort of understand why that might have its uh, appeal. Isn't it more isn't like on the whole online dating thing more restrictive with the algorithm and the structure of the apps and all that? No. I well, mean, I guess I there, guess... but once you actually meet up, it's not entirely clear maybe whether you're like just gonna fuck or you're gonna have a friendship which develops into a romance or whatever. Um, I think there's just a lot of. Un- you're gonna start a podcast, whether it's just gonna be a parasocial <laughs> relationship. That's you the know, way. The that's the way. Alex, that's that the way. Alex, for listeners' benefit, that's the way Alex and George originally met. They were unsure what happened, and then they it's... formed a beautiful relationship for a podcast. It's the way that all three of us met. Um, but oh no, we we weren't going to give the uh, origin story. Sorry, never give an origin story. Forget that, listeners. That's yeah, obviously we were, a joke. We were, we were, I, I, I was actually sent abroad as an operative and uh, met um, Phil in Serbia. He was a who was a dissident. Um, he was an anti-communist dissident. Keep continuing doing anti-communist dissidents, <laughs> even though there wasn't any communism to oppose anymore. And I recruited him. <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's move on. So um, probably the most uh, controversial one, the most controversial episode, or the one that um, kind of most provoked responses, um, pro and con, was uh, the first episode of this year, number 310, Do You Want to Degrow? I'm sure you'll all have uh, listened to this about, you know, kind of our discussion and critique of degrowth. So the most popular comment was from Casper Schaller, and I'll read out um, selections from it because it's quite long. Casper says, uh, it's sort of disappointing that the hosts of a show, which is about critiquing capitalism and presumably finding ways to go beyond it, apparently lack any kind of imagination and are deeply invested in the status quo. Your argument against the 15-minute city, for instance, is that people need to drive their kids to school and to activities. But kids all over the world, including in industrialized countries, go to school and other activities on their own, walking, cycling, or taking public transit. So you can't even envisage a change to the urban fabric that would transform people's lives into something that is already a reality in many places. We already have, and then more broadly, Casper goes on to say, we already have all the technology and the resources needed to enable every single human being on the planet to live a materially rich life. And we've had the means to do so for a very long time. Discussions about whether we need to tech our way out of poverty are as old as socialism. And we don't. It's not a problem of technological development, but of political will. Uh, you mentioned that you're in favor of rational planning and lowering carbon emissions. Could you talk about what your alternative to degrowth and other environmental ideas you apparently think are ridiculous and even dangerous would be? And don't just cop out by saying build nuclear power plants everywhere, despite what your lobbying guest and Lee Phillips claim, there are many issues with them. Well, uh, I guess in deep breath, and then uh, I don't know. Why, what, why, do, why do all of the comments that are most critical of us get the most <laughs> likes on Patreon? I mean, there is a dynamic there. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure who the lobbying uh, guest is, but I mean, I can answer on on my own behalf that I think the the thing that I still really I doesn't I just doesn't I don't like about degrowth is that it puts the outcome. First, it's not about the process of democratically controlling production. It's like we have to we have to have the outcome decided in advance, and that means that you can't have a you're kind of closing off um, op- options. And so you're already nice. saying you can have any choice you like as long as it's this one. And then, you know that might be a kind of quite basic response, but I still you know that's my fundamental response is that I don't you know don't have a an easy set of kind of technological solutions, but I have a a magic bullet in democracy because then whatever the solution uh in terms of the level of growth or degrowth or whatever whatever it ends up being is is legitimized legitimized by the fact we've 
had democratic control over it. That might not be um, <clears throat> fully satisfying to to Casper, but I, you, you kind of have to also grit your teeth and say thank you for sending such a. I mean, it's a it's a good challenging comment, and people did like it. So we we should um, we should dig into it and, and try and give a, a, a better response than one I just gave, probably. Well, no, I mean, I think it's a good, you know, there is, I mean, the, I suppose there, I would take from George one point further, which is why is it that it is so favored by capitalists, right? I mean, you know, so I know it's a discussion which is current on the Marxist left um, and the wider left, you know, the green left as a whole, but it doesn't, but the left is in such a powerless state that it's not as if this is representing kind of a powerful um, you know, left-wing social movement. Um, and at the same time, there is like a significant, you know, there is significant, I mean, the Davos set, um, they're all, you know, they're, all they do is constantly tell us about how, you know, we should stop kind of taking, um, you know, stop traveling on planes so, and start eating so let, bugs. Let me, just, let me just read a quick comment, um, which kind of builds on that um, and actually agrees with Casper that we can then bring in as well to the discussion. Tom L. says, obviously, degrowth in a capitalist economy equals recession. Not good. But it's easy to imagine, though apparently impossible to achieve, an economy in which resources were rationally allocated towards the production of useful things, as opposed to the production of waste, and the product rationally distributed, as opposed to uselessly hoarded by plutocrats. In such an economy, you could have degrowth and yet an increase in material abundance at the same time. So I want to add in... I mean, I'm not, I don't think that's right. I don't think our problem is resource hoarding by plutocrats. You know, I mean, it's not as if, um, you know, Jeff Bezos has all the yachts and that's why other people don't have yachts, right? It's the problem of, uh, of the way of, you know, the way in which um, asset values distort economies and also the fact that there is no channel for productive investment um, which can be profitably distributed and that they control you know they dominate and control the possibility for for that so it's not exactly hoarding by plutocrats in the sense that they hoard consumption goods that just need to be you know um, redistributed and further in response to casper i suppose i mean i would tell you know i agree i think the resources and technology is there but actually giving everybody a higher standard of living in literally if you wanted to give every human being a higher standard of living in the world right that would mean um or even maybe just in the developing world say industrializing africa that would mean an enormous economic expansion right um and so that doesn't you know that is inevitably and so that just doesn't seem to me there is any way in which you can um do you know do that without tremendous transformation in the social fabric of humanity and the idea that you could kind of maintain you know kind of a evenly balanced economy by kind of keeping the keeping the industrialized world in some kind of steady state by holding back the mass living standards while expanding living standards elsewhere again that seems to me um it would require kind of um, such degree of centralized power that it wouldn't correspond to anything that would be a meaningful, um, I think, a meaningful vision of global socialism. So when Casper says, you know, like you can't imagine, you know, in some parts of the world, you know, kids cycle and walk, that's true, right? But that's also presuming that they have those amenities within 15 minutes or within a reasonable time frame to get to. My my vision, you know, I, I've... Um, Maybe again, I mean, maybe I am being unimaginative, but my vision of changing the urban fabric wouldn't be to continue concentrating populations in um, 
cramped living standards surrounded by huge and empty kind of natural parks and green belts and green reservations, but rather to deconcentrate um, urban urban centers. And that means giving people, ordinary people, more living space. And if they want yeah. more living space, then you need a more kind of um, elaborated transport infrastructure. And as much, you know, as much as you could give to public transport, inevitably it will include people wanting to be able to kind of um, use, have mobility that is um, directly under their control um, that doesn't require public transport, and that is they can use kind of um, easily and accessibly, right, without relying on a kind of on a timetable just for even small things. Anyway, look, well, I can't, yeah. so I just can't get on board this kind of vision of um, of a hair shared kind of uh, the hair shared vision that Casper seems to me to be promoting. I don't think he intends to, but it seems to me inevitably the kind of model that he's setting out that it would lead to that. And, you know, I can't, I mean, I don't mind echoing Lee Phillips. Um, the, you know, the problems of our current kind of energy infrastructure are um, vastly outweigh the problems associated with nuclear. So I'm happy to say build more nuclear plants. You know, I, I think you could build out some renewables as well, and that would probably be, um, that would probably be a good thing. But the bulk of energy, it seems to me, it should come from nuclear power plants throughout the developed world and even in the developing world too. So just um, briefly kind of in response to these, I think part of the, you know, these discussions, particularly in terms of painting a vision of what presumably post-capitalist society would look like, because I don't think discussing a degrowth capitalist society is worth discussing at all, because it's obviously dystopian. Um, So, you know, to the extent that we're just, if we're all on the same page and we acknowledge that we're discussing a post-capitalist society and different visions for it, a lot of it founders on, and a lot of the discussions and disagreements seem to come from the fact that the vision that you have might be reflective of just your own subjective preferences, which are themselves shaped by your milieu or your chosen lifestyle or whatever. So, you know, I kind of like the idea of a 15 minute city. That sounds quite nice. It's a kind of little petty bourgeois dream. Um, And a lot of the images painted of a degrowth world are precisely that, that you can walk from place to place and you have your butchers and your bakers and it's all quite nice and whatever. Now that is purely just a reflection of my own prejudices and, and, and preferences. And isn't necessarily the most efficient way to do things or the best way to do things. But I don't want to make that claim right now anyway, which I just want to kind of reiterate George's point, which I think was well put, which is precisely that it puts the cart before the horse to suggest that the kind of particular form of urbanization that you would have um, would be, you know, kind of set in stone and that that would be the, the, the kind of the thing that drives your politics forward rather than um, simply being, um, having a, a society of abundance and where abundance is shared and that people will then have the choice of the way they would want to live. One brief point, in, specifically on the kind of environmental grounds of this, because it's it's something which I wanted to say, I think, back in that episode, and I, and I didn't, which is that a lot of the discussion about waste and redundancy of production and so on, all of which ad- advances a probably well-founded sense of exhaustion of just kind of too much, too much stuff, like the too much dumb stuff. Like, the extent to which kind of little consumer baubles account for um, production in general, and especially in terms of um, carbon emissions, is very little, I think. You know, it's a small proportion of it. So it, it kind of is one of, I think, the the animus and the kind of hatred of, and, and you know, kind of all the, 
all the sort of emotions directed in these discussions against like, oh, well, there's all this stuff actually is a reflection of the fact that, you know, it's kind of reflects a consumer standpoint where we see all this stuff everywhere. There's too much stuff and you think, well, this is the stuff that needs to get rid of. That's fine. And by the, you know, kind of it, but to a certain extent, it's by the by when we consider kind of carbon emissions as a whole. And even in terms of like redundancy of production. Yeah, it's stupid that there's all these different producers of little, you know, plastic bubbles. But we know redundancy of production is more like, you know, different steel producers competing against each other rather than having that production socialized. And so mm-hmm. I, I think when we're talking about rationalization of production, yes, absolutely. And we should dream big in terms of what rationalization of production means, but we shouldn't get hung up on our own kind of consumer standpoint vision of of what actually is being produced and what accounts for the majority of production. Yeah, I don't know why you're having such a go at, at baubles and the bauble industry. I'm just thinking of the, the 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 context when you actually have baubles, at least in Britain, is just just passed, having taken down the Christmas decorations a few a few weeks ago. And I don't think that is a substantial. I agree with you to the extent that you're talking about baubles in the very narrow sense. It's not a a big part of um, <clears throat> global kind of um, production, material production. But I mean, I think the the one point that I do agree with Casper on is that it's not a problem of technological development, but political will, whether we kind of go to any sort of new um, relationship with the environment or relationship to production or distribution or whatever. And I think that is an, you know, that is an important point because the easy solution often presented here is that, you know, we don't need to have these political discussions because it's a technological solution. And actually, no, we do need to have the political discussions as these two good comments, um, make and I, I mean to a certain extent i do agree with tom l that it is possible potentially to have um I don't, you could have degrowth and an increase in material abundance at the same time i don't think for reasons that phil pointed out about the you know the the large number of people who don't aren't yet at that material abundance level in india and various other places in the world that's a lot of people will that lead to global degrowth probably not but there is there is still a part of me that thinks that old socialist argument that production is irrational like there is a great deal of waste if we took that under collective democratic control there would be we probably wouldn't oh this is a bit of a wanky point but we probably wouldn't even talk about growth or degrowth it wouldn't we wouldn't have the sort of same approach because you know once you have that rational control you would straight away presumably um ensure that everyone has enough and so then yeah would be would be a sort of a strange outdated concept potentially but again that might be a bit I, I think that no i think that's right it's kind of fetishized that you know term growth but you know um to the to the extent that people who are arguing for degrowth are against expanding production um i think that you know or at least exp- expanded production to mm-hmm. um for human need and for human dreams indeed um then um then it should be opposed um what, uh, this is a good point i think from f oregon who says there is in politics a strain of thought who wants that wants politics to end it's on all sides but much stronger on the left and liberal center degrowth has elements of a plan to end politics for all time a steady state economy and a steady state society uh, F. Oregon comments that they watch dozens and dozens of YouTube degrowth academic lectures, and there's no discussion of how resources would be allocated. Is the value of an item or resource using um, re- service solely based on some ESG, uh, like 
uh, some excuse me some ESG like score for every single item in existence, uh, the various forms of restriction on what could and couldn't be produced uh, would require a totalitarian state to implement. For example, uh, they witness in one of these YouTube videos a suggestion that any innovation would have to be assessed by the state before it could go ahead. Andrea replies to this saying, do you have any idea how capitalist innovation works and how it constantly destroys and suppresses any kind of true innovation that is not strictly tied to profitability? Um, how many quite cheap projects are scrapped by funding bodies every day precisely and explicitly because they A, are not directly producing increases in profit and B, could potentially destroy market space for commodities that would, no have, would have no sense of in existing um, if these new innovations take hold? Control on, on innovation is already here, and it's an intrinsic, constitutive part of the capitalist mode of production. Now, I, I mean, I, I assume that's Andrea making a, a counter-argument, but, but in fact, I think that's a very good argument against the both kind of degrowth communism as well as, you know, capitalism as, as it exists today, that um, a lot of innovation and things that could be produced that improve people's lives uh, are not produced and not engaged in for various reasons. And the degrowth vision would seem to limit that too. I mean, I think it's the, it's the, um, just on that quickly on that innovation point, go back again and again to Evgeny Morozov's to say everything click here, like solutionism, innovation uh, under capitalism, particularly in tech is more a problem, more a question of redefining things as problems that you have the tools to solve than solving actual problems. And I think, you know, that is that's a pretty success, successful redefinition of innovation if you're the one who is an innovation consultant, as I'm sure there maybe probably not listeners, but there are several out there. Yeah, I just wanted to throw that in. I mean, it's not, but it's not, you know, kind of, um, I mean, I take Andrea's point that we have no reason to accept the um, kind of self-mythologizing that capitalism has about um it's dynamics of innovation, though, you know, I'd maybe shift some of the emphases that Andre gives it. But it's also worth pointing out, right, that it's not, I mean, it's not a capitalist thing in terms of capitalist capitalism as a whole, right? That you can see very clearly, and it's something which has been discussed, you know, for a while now, that you have kind of a downward trend in innovation, um, the extension and prolongation of various kind of intellectual property rights claims that chokes off the ability to disseminate them more widely and kind of puts all the, you know, kind of contributes to rent seeking as opposed to genuine innovation. Um, there was recently a debate about the fact that um, there seems to be a decline in scientific innovation. Um, and that reflects kind of uh, a, a sclerotic, sclerotic research culture. Um, in modern university systems across the industrialized world and especially in the West. So, I mean, uh, you know, beyond kind of um, the problems with capitalism and uh, kind of hypothetical communism, it also seems that we're in a rut just in terms of technical and technological innovation, just in historic terms, right? There was more of it in the past. And that's connected also to material standards of living. I mean, this is Philip Gordon, the economic historian's point, that the real kind of enormous transformation in the industrialized world in terms of people's standards of living was in the post-war era, right? Where you had kind of um, electricity, fridges, cars, washing machines, these kinds of white goods and electricity and pump pipe water, when all of this stuff was kind of extended at a mass scale um, and that it palpably transformed people's lives and that we've had no equivalent transformation in people's standards of living. You know, we get kind of better better fridges and better TVs, but there is no 
transformation to the fabric of living like we had in the past. Yeah, well, it's um, like the, the example that's always given of the 747 that we're still using, though actually the last 747 has just come off the production line, but nevertheless, yeah, it's still indeed. the same technology. So again, that comparison like 1920 to 1970, it's, you know, the worlds apart versus, you know, 1970 to 2020. We don't even have Concorde anymore. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, agree on that. There's regression, right? I mean, this was there was a point in the FT just published recently by Rana Faruhar, which is worth looking at, um, where she says, you know, that you, the kind of automation you have is even eating into the efficiency gains that come from a division of labor, right? So we have automated checkout tills in supermarkets, and but there's real, you know, there's real kind of questions as to whether or not it's actually more efficient to have a person there rather than to make customers do it themselves. Not to mention kind of cost saving for the um you know for the supermarket but not necessarily more efficient from the viewpoint of um you know aggregate hours that people spend or the you know that we spend collectively on certain kinds of activities anyway so i mean i you know i just want to suggest it's more complicated than kind of um capitalism versus a hypothetical vision of a socialist future so uh just running through the the last of these comments here but guys obviously jump in if you want to comment uh well ervin conduct Chu uh, says, I didn't uh, I didn't know much about degrowth before listening to the episode, and I still feel like I don't know very much anymore. I wish this episode had more structure. Um, okay, noted. Uh, Marc Larrivé says, it's not the question about what type of growth. Capitalist growth is chaos and all about extracting surplus value. Degrow under capitalism would ultimately be the ca- a capitalist class politics. But rational growth under a different model of different mode of production could, I hope, be more ecologically sound and less alienating. And then finally, yeah. Paul Brewer says, uh, I'm not interested in defending degrowth, so don't take my comment in that vein. However, the idea that the 15-minute city is some kind of novelty is misleading. When I first lived on my own in London, carless, in 1982, in effect, I lived in a 15-minute city where just about everything I needed was around a 15-minute walk away. And gives various examples of doctors and butchers and blah, 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 blah. Uh, And this was imposed by coercion too. The coercion was called money and space. People couldn't afford as many cars as they could just a decade later. And developers in the Victorian interwar era hadn't allowed for as many cars as was feasible to buy in 1982, let alone the 1990s. I could go on, but the point I'm making is that some kind of coercion is inevitable uh, and it's an inevitable part of a democratic society simply because resources have to be rationed somehow. My rule of thumb is that any significant initiative will feature 20% of people being against it. They don't have a veto, so the minority are coerced. Phil seems to be arguing that the planners of Canterbury don't have a democratic mandate, but one could equally say that in absence of any party taking up the cause of opposing the 15-minute city plan, that there seems to be a consensus in favor of it probably subtracting around 20% of people who uh, are those who are complaining. We'll only know with certainty once the politics of opposition is organized. I think that last yeah, point is so, important. Yeah, Paul Brewer makes excellent points. And I suppose I'd say a few things in my defense. Firstly, that the, um, you know my intention is indeed to kind of stoke up opposition and indeed to test how far this democratic consensus for these developments is real. Um, And I mean, and they do have a democratic mandate in as much as elected local municipal authorities are rolling, you know, rolling this out. And, you know, we have a, we have a chance to ask them at the next, um, at the next local election um, this spring. So, you know, we'll see again, we'll, you know, that can, that can be tested where I'd go a bit further is that the structure of local government, given how gutted, um, local government has been in the UK since the Thatcher period and ever since, 
means that you have these, um, you know, effectively kind of autonomous bureaucracies operating with only a thin veneer of democratic legitimacy that comes through voting. There's very little opportunity to steer local planning in in a way that reflects citizens, um, you know, citizens' priorities. And that, that situation has just got worse over time particularly as funding has got worse for local authorities. And so they're more and more dependent on planners or sorry, on builders, basically, and property developers who fund them because they don't get the same level of funding that they once got from central government. So, you know, there's a kind of, uh, there's questions about the structure of the British state as well at the national level, not just of the kind of democratic legitimacy at the local level. But beyond that, I'd say also the, I mean, part of this issue is that a lot of this stuff about um, these transformations and the green transition is uh, expressly designed to thwart. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of towns and cities sign up to these various kind of mayoral pledges at the global level and various kinds of um, uh, you know green transition commitments and so on um, that lock in these particular kinds of policies, right? And they kind of secede from national level control and uh, lock themselves into these um, kind of sub-state and super-state global networks. And capital cities in particular are very, or large cities in particular, very good at this. Um, You know, the kind of London under Sadiq Khan has aspired to become a kind of independent city-state seceding from Brexit Britain for a long time now. Um, And so this is a way in which... um, decision-making at the urban and municipal level is insulated from democratic oversight, right? You can have any kind of flavor of local policy as long as it's a kind of a green globalist one. So, you know, I'd add that to, I'd add that to the picture as well. Um, though I take, you know, I take Paul Brewer's point. This part of this will come out in the democratic wash of contestation of the local level. So it's a good thing. No, at least Erwin uh, didn't say that he, they knew more about degrowth before the episode than after, because then we would have degrown their knowledge about degrowth. I was thinking about that the whole time Phil was talking, and I still couldn't deliver it properly. No, a good, a good comment from from Mark as well. But yeah, uh, yeah, you, you know what I mean. Anyway, but I t- do take the point about more structure. Structure is good. Order is good. We should um, embrace these things um, and have very detailed. Yeah, I I would ag- I'd agree as I agree as well with that comment. And you know, if our listeners feel that we should do more of it, please let us know as well. You yeah, know I mean, yeah, um, it's always useful. It's always useful. Um, yeah, if we should grow our content on degrowth, there you're not going to tell us what to say, but you can tell us how to say it and in what order. Moving through to the last uh, three episodes. So uh, episode 312 and 313, uh, which was the episode with Dylan Riley, Constellation Prize Marxism and the Bunga Bunga State. This was a very popular episode. And thank you to a couple of you who pushed us to have Dylan Riley on um, over the past year. Um, uh, so Pap Silardist Van says, uh, to the question of post-war democracy and about its origins and about whether it's an achievement of the working class or uh, something that was conceded after the working class was disciplined. GM Tamash, uh, RIP, who uh, sadly passed away recently, um, makes the point that fascism smashed not only the organized working class, but the bourgeoisie as well, 
with all the products of the long 19th century revolutions, liberal institutions and the Enlightenment. Of course, the two smashings had different rationales and degrees, but I think the point is valid and explains a lot about the democracy-oriented mindset of post-war Christian democracy in continental Europe. Um, I think that's, uh, I don't know if we want to respond to this, but I mean, I think that's a very important point about the crushing of the bourgeoisie and kind of the ending of the kind of 19th century liberalism by fascism. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think there's a, there's, there's a few, maybe we take a few together because there's a lot of, a lot of very good complex points in this, um, on this episode. Okay. So, uh, Andrea says the disciplining of the population, uh, so that they could be then trusted with democracy was already an argument made by Hobsbawm, even though he was referring to 50 years earlier, but the uh, 50 years before the post-World War II era. Um, he, he does this either in the Age of Empire or Age of Extremes. Regarding the Italian case, uh, which was discussed also, I think, in, in the episode, I think there's a slight overstating of the importance and strength of the left before World War II. Uh, regarding post-World War II democracy, even though I agree with the general case um, that the disciplining of the people allowed for democracy, American influence was a massive obstacle to a real democracy. Um, It did allow democracy to take hold, but the amount of meddling and interference was extremely high. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um, Do you want to take these? Because then there's two other ones which which deal with slightly different uh, slightly different grounds. Yeah, no. So just on this, um, I think they're both both very good comments on the point about, I guess, fascism smash or fascist smash. So the yeah the the idea that the bourgeoisie got smashed by fascism. There's a um, a Gramsci note or or essay or something I can't exactly remember where he talked and uh, okay he talks about the beaver and the beaver's testicles and the idea is that the hunter wants the beaver testicles for some medicinal reason so in order to survive the beaver chews off its own testicles and leaves them for the hunter and the idea is that this is essentially what the what the bourgeoisie do that they um, give up civil liberties give up kind of parliamentary democracy in order to to save themselves so it may be a partial self smashing in order to to continue that kind of gattapardian like things have to change in order to remain the same definitely an italian flavor to to my responses to these um yeah and then i think um yeah i didn't know that or in my memory of reading those hobsbawm books i can't remember exactly where he where he says that, but fair enough. If if Andrea is saying that this is an argument that's already in um, in Hobsbawm, and that there is a process of, <clears throat> I guess, management prior to the introduction of, of of democracy, it kind of makes sense to a certain extent that there's only concessions made by the ruling class which they can afford to give, and you know, you're not giving away anything truly central, depending on your perception if you're a beaver of, of the value of your own testicles i've kind of gone round in a bit of a circle here um potentially it's it's um yeah i think the comments were just very good i should have just said that and and rather than just I, yeah, I mean, I, I, my I, response I, I, onto them i am a little kind of trouble i mean i have to kind of straighten out my own thinking on this because you know that a lot of the contemporary discussion over the past decade or more has been about the incompatibility of capitalism democracy against the cold war narrative that they are necessarily conjoined that if you want democracy you have to have capitalism and vice versa um and 
you know, my my understanding, I think, was generally that, yeah, the working class had achieved uh, democracy, that it had fought for it and gained this concession. Now, this argument made by Dylan Riley and, uh, and others, of course, is that, you know, that it, that it is a concession once the working class has been disciplined. Um, does, I guess, need straightening out in relation to um, the argument that, you know, kind of a defense of democracy. Now, I would instinctively always defend democracy, but, you know, it, it does kind of put you in a, in a in an awkward situation if you recognize that democracy is always a concession once the working class has been disciplined. Um, it's re- if, if not that we should kind of give up on democracy, but rather it's a recognition that if you're having democracy, it's probably because you're being too well behaved. I'm not, I mean, I, you know, I think Istvan makes a good point and I suppose uh, guessing by the name and by um, his Twitter account online, you know, that the, it particularly applies to, um, you know, Central and Eastern Europe where bourgeois liberal institutions themselves, you know, tended to be weaker than they were in Western Europe um, or at least had more shallow roots given the kind of social, uh, social structure of, um, of those states. So, it's a tricky one. I mean, I guess there are other elements, you know, to to add to it as well. It's also the, um, I mean, part of the breast, part of the uh, creation of mass democracies post-war was also the explicit complicity of communist parties in France and Italy, right? Um, under, di- you know, more or less following, and Britain to a lesser extent too, more or less following direct orders from Moscow. Right, so not just um, the democracy-oriented mindset of Christian post-war Christian democracy, but also the um, conservative tenor of um, Stalinist parties that had led resistance, national resistance movements um, in continental Europe itself. So, I think that it's you know it's I suppose what I'm saying is it's not just kind of um, subjugation and submission, uh, whether that be from you know American interference or um, fascist um you know fascist white iron guards or what have you but also the um political you know particular political choices that were made by the most radical elements of um of the organized working class because they were in hoc to moscow in the post-war period all right um so taking two more points uh, john o'rordan in reference to this idea that the left are just mere defenders of the state uh john says that's a huge understatement the left if by this we mean kind of the corbin sanders left actively loves the state and sees it as a savior of sorts or solution to most contemporary class issues i think this is straightforwardly due to the class composition of the left in addition uh john notes that when has capitalism not been political against the argument made by uh dylan riley as well as robert brenner that um, we're now entering this form of political capitalism I'm thinking as far back as the Enclosure Act or various state-backed or enforcement monopolies like the East India Company, Royal Africa Company, etc., that we've had political capitalism. Um, I, I, I share your skepticism. Um, uh, finally, Eamon says, excellent episode. I'm curious if you think Riley's skepticism of the politics of fairness, of justice, and so on, in part explains the contemporary left's blasé attitude to free speech and to sovereignty and rights in general. If the left's attitude on these things, not only political laziness born of defeat, but also a genuine feature of Marxist politics proper. I think uh, Bungacast, especially Phil, is very hostile to this aspect of the contemporary left, 
but would also think you're very sympathetic to Riley's advocacy of a post-Viberian left politics. Let me just kind of try to parse that, I think, and then Phil can reply, because I'm not sure if that was um, entirely uh, so easy to follow. But basically that um, if you are, and if the Marxist tradition is skeptical um, or, you know, very much does not share the approach in emphasizing fairness and justice, that you will thereby also not care about defending free speech and you also don't care about rights or about sovereignty because those are all kind um, kind of legal formalisms which have no place in the politics of, you know, seizing state power. Phil? It's a really tough question. Um, there is, I, I mean, I think, you know, kind of um, fairness and justice are, by their nature, they are less tangible and, um, dare I say, perhaps even concrete than questions of rights and, you know, whether they're political rights or civil rights or the, um, the nature of state power. So I think you know there is there is a difference, um, but you know, like obviously, Marx. I mean, and this is a point that George has made a few times before. You know, there's this kind of um, there's this um, somewhat kind of uh, lazy hand waving that has become de rigueur on the left um, from uh, with, and it's perhaps associated with with Jacobin that Marxism is about freedom. So reclaiming the idea that it's um, and that you know that has some value that Marxism is a vision of freedom. So it's not a vision of um, it's not intended as a vision of kind of totalitarian state oppression. Certainly not. But at the same time, there is you know it certainly it goes beyond um, it goes beyond the idea of simply extending political freedom to everyone because by its very nature that claim. Marxism's claim is that the extension of political f- freedom is insufficient to achieve genuine human emancipation. So what I'm getting at is, yes, um, Marxist politics proper of necessity must transcend, you know, I mean, this is as Marx made the claim, you know, himself, it must transcend the narrow horizon of bourgeois right. Um, I suppose what I'd say is that the the fact that the left kind of is unable to navigate is unable to navigate the question of bourgeois right and is um, so ready to kind of cast it away in circumstances in which it is itself defeated and, you know, weak and doesn't exist in any kind of meaningful way, in any kind of meaningful political sense outside of um, outside of the academy and outside of kind of narrow intellectual circles. I think that speaks to, to a, a political laziness and mm. a lack of political clarity. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, the question of these questions of bourgeois rights are questions of their contradiction in con- in the circumstances of capitalism, not the fact that they're, you know, kind of um, purely ideological mystifications or, um, you know, delusions or something like that. And I, yeah, so I'd say there is a difference between fairness, you know, more cloudy terms like fairness and justice compared to sovereignty rights and so on. But Eamon makes a great point. Yeah, I'm not sure that the Rawlsians would agree with you that justice and fairness are cloudy. I think there's 700 pages of a theory of justice, which says that they're basically the same. Pretty cloudy. Which you, but, but, but this is a pretty cloudy book when I tried but, to read it anyway. Well, it, I think it's 
I disagree. I think it's clear but wrong. Um, so we can agree to disagree. But I, I think this is an interesting point because I think the discussion that we had um, in reference to Dylan Riley and, and you know, and also the uh, episode we did with Ross Wolf, kind of against justice. I think you know, there's very important points which would be against, um, which would precisely. Um, you know, very, run very counter to the Rawlsian left of a, the idea of, you know, particularly a kind of egalitarian notion that the right distribution of justice implies this specific distribution of goods and an egalitarian blah, 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 um, that the Marxist tradition would be against that. But I think sometimes this discussion slips over into an argument that somehow Marx is completely amoral, that it makes no moral claims about the good whatsoever. And that's, for me, a step too far, because of course, the idea that, you know, based around kind of human flourishing um, would be, it's a moral claim effectively about that everybody should have access to, you know, to be equally free, which is to say it, it makes a claim about equality and about freedom, which are, which have a kind of moral component there um, about the good, which can't be um, just kind of sidestepped in, in a kind of, um, a, in, in an attempt to turn Marxism into this purely, um, this thing that is purely concerned with power or um or, or is completely able. yeah i i don't want to be that guy but it's not about equality of freedom it's about interdependence you know none of us can flourish unless everybody else is in the situation of flourishing as well so it's not that we're equally free as that we're blah 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 but anyway that i think there i did have a sort of semi-serious point that the like i think the contemporary left has a like a, either good or like it's these things are good or bad these bourgeois rights like free speech or like fairness or whatever but actually as phil kind of alluded to the whole point is about transcending these bourgeois rights so you go you kind of like go through them go beyond them you cancel them out and transcend them and take them to a higher plane you know there's probably a word in german for that kind of thing there's a word for all, all these sorts of things um but yeah i mean then that's what the left has lost it's like no free speech under capitalism is bad because there's unequal like own ownership of the means of communication therefore blah so yeah i think um <clears throat> eagle eagle-eared listeners might might have got a little reference in there um which i will not explain but yeah so a, a good a good question from from Eamon. thank you all right um moving on to uh, the penultimate kind of set of episodes that we'll deal with uh 314 and 315 the episode on film with Marin tom and alex dale uh a sort of mixed appreciation on this some people liked it some people didn't um am starts by commenting that in the episode about christopher lash in around 2019 phil had a great comment referring to ross douthat along the lines of if he had read any of the original writing on these topics his analysis wouldn't be so feeble and that's how it felt listening to you talk about cinema in these two episodes Ouch. Ouch! Yeah, uh, but kind of a good a good way to deliver a, a criticism. Like Phil had a great line. I want to turn that against you. So <laughs> yeah, no. fair fair play to AM. Um, specifically in reference to one of the films we discussed, Michael Warren says your take on Triangle of Sadness was superficial. The third act on the island is a critique of identity politics as alone being capable of ending inequality. Any economic hierarchy will ultimately lead to exploitation, regardless of who is in charge and possesses the means of production. Uh, oh, this is, of course, if you haven't seen the film, maybe spoiler alert. But uh, you know, the the kind of Asian, Filipino um, kind of servant on the ship comes to rule over with an iron fist um, all the wealthy white um, shipwrecked uh, passengers. Um, only in a society. Well, more... 
huh? More specific than that. I mean, I think Sir Michael Warren is right. I tried to develop this point when we were talking about it. Maybe I didn't do very well. But I mean, I think the best parts of Triangle of Sadness weren't the parts about economic inequality. There were sly digs, I think, at gender relations and also, you know, at kind of identity, you know, kind of a matriarchal vision of society, which is what you get in the third act, right? It's basically the women are in charge and there's... um, and they demand sexual favors and whatever, like all yeah, the kind of horrible vicious, stuff that men do. Yeah, there's a vicious competition for um, for the handsome young man who's kind of left on um, you know left on the island with them. Um, and, but it's not just the in the third act, right? I mean, in the beginning, the relationship between the model and her boyfriend and the fraught kind of character, the way she's a very you know she's very shallow and uh, manipulative, and she even admits to him that she's shallow and manipulative. Um, all of that, I think, indicates that there was a much more sophisticated film kind of running in parallel to the, um, you know, the kind of complaining about oligarchical excess and, um, you know, banal kind of Guardian style points about inequality. And that was missed. You know, that was mostly missed by critics of the film. You know, everyone took it as a film about inequality when I think it was in many ways much better, more a film about the failure of um, of the matriarchy. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know about failure of the matriarchy specifically, but I, I mean, I, I regret not having made the point about, um, you know, what happens in the third act, basically. And I, um, it's too late now, but I, I would have said exactly what, um, you know, Michael Warren actually said. But anyway, the, I think, it, it, but it does point to a, another issue with the film, which is I don't know how smart it is. I mean, I've heard interviews with Ruben Östlund, and he does seem um, a sharp guy, and certainly some of his earlier films are kind of kind of very much go against the grain of left liberalism for all that they also um, touch on similar themes like whatever, inequality or whatever, um, or desocialization as in his very first film and so on. And so this uh, makes me wonder about, you know, that debate between the ship captain who supposedly is a Marxist, but actually is a kind of fairly uh, milk toast democratic socialist slash left liberal um, in his conversations with uh, Russian capitalists. And I wonder whether that itself isn't um, a kind of satirical gaze at a lot of the kind of internet style capitalism versus communism sort of debates rather than the captain presenting the author's voice, the director's voice. I I don't know. I haven't Hmm. um, made up my mind on it. So I hadn't seen it when we discussed it. So I, I probably have to take some of the blame for for not wanting any spoilers and so for restricting the um, the discussion. So I, I will I will um, yeah be be banished to the island for that one. So I mean just just in uh, on similar terms, Doormaker says I haven't seen Triangle of Sadness, but likewise would take issue with Parasite being cast as an eat the rich film. Parasite is as much a tragedy as it is a black comedy, and the wealthy characters are not evil just somewhat ignorant i think that's um absolutely correct i think the issue is with when talking about these you know quote-unquote eat the rich films which some of them are very good and you know parasite for example and a lot of this sort of quote-unquote anti-capitalist cinema is that sometimes the films are very good but there is a question to be asked about um maybe them in aggregate as a kind of cultural phenomenon which is, you know, funded and produced by big studios and which is consumed by a kind of upper middle class audience very often. Yeah, and that wins so that, all the awards, the element, right? Is... So it receives aff- affirmation of some kind, yeah. right? So, so and yeah. the banal kind of reviews are, oh, you know, this is a bad kind of, you know, inequality or whatever. So yeah, I mean I think they do, you know, they're not they're not all the greatest movies ever, but they do, I think, transcend the banal kind of takes of that it's just about inequality. Um 
So uh, Picky Bun says, I'd be interested to hear what Marin and Alex think of the role of the critic in modern cinema. Do they cement its post-political nature or challenge it? I'd probably say the former, as the current exhausted state of the culture industry is most keenly felt in the collapse of independent film criticism within established media. They, meaning film critics, seemingly act as cogs in marketing campaigns. And then finally, I can't speak on behalf of Alex, but I can, and I can't speak on behalf of Marin either. But I can point um, Picky Bun to Marin's uh, chapter in the Conformist Rebellion, where, yeah, I mean, her argument is that film criticism has become a basically substituted representation for aesthetic appreciation. So it's precisely that. It's precisely a way that the film critic becomes an arbiter of like, is this. Um, representationally correct or not um and so yeah it's a reinforcement of the of that aspect of the culture industry i think um that's the argument if i remember it correctly in marin's chapter so um yeah and you know maybe that's one of the reasons of, for starting a film criticism podcast you know get outside of that um culture industry uh, observers and re and, and enforcement agents to the freedom of the the podcasting critic perhaps so uh, finally, Jolion Nunswit says, I found the appraisal of Jeanne Dielman, uh, 1975, as a meritless woke shibboleth quite bizarre. Not only is it rather vehemently antididactic, it is, if anything, a product of second wave feminism, reflected in its treatment of sex work, the personalist political, the domestic, etc., which treats it as a wonderfully subtle, in a, treats it in a wonderfully subtle dialectical fashion. Besides, it has long ranked quite highly in various critics' poll. So this is hardly a coup. Haven't seen it, but uh, you know I'm, curious, I'm even more curious to to watch the movie now. Yep, I'm going to watch it. I can declare publicly by the next bonus bonus, mm-hmm. I will have a. I can't qualify. I can't say a definitely an informed opinion, but I will have an opinion, and I will will have watched it. So, getting part of the way there, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Likewise. <laughs> um, okay. Finally, to finish off uh, the most recent episode, bar the one that came out uh, today, we're recording this on thirty Tuesday, the thirty first of January. You're hearing it in a week from now. Um, the twenty twenty two review with Ashley Frawley. Richard R says, perhaps ironically, though perhaps exactly to the point, in the U.S., the primary opponents of social workers intervening in families are in- ethnic identity or local community based organizations. I myself am a social worker, and it is hard to argue with the personal experience of my black or Latin clients, mainly convicts, that profess that the police, as well as my profession, rob those groups of their autonomy. Abolition appears to mean, when all is said and done, that is to say family abolition, when all is said and done, when the anarchists and left liberals and communists and fourth worlders have all had their say, that the state comes in and supersedes any other authority. Abolition of the police in the U.S. means empowering the FBI over local sheriffs or police departments. Abolition of families means throwing children into interstate foster system. Spot on. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Great. Great point. Uh, JK, JK, JK says, I think the biggest problem with the COVID to Ukraine emergency politics thesis, effectively that one uh, substituted very quickly for another, is simply that it doesn't make sense. Firstly, very few of the COVID public health restrictions are still in place in the West, even in, even China is relaxed. Uh, secondly, there has actually been a decent amount of deliberation surrounding the war in Ukraine, and it has achieved fairly significant support, even in cases where it faced real tests of legitimacy. For example, Meloni in Italy was elected as a fervent supporter of Ukraine, despite running an otherwise insurgent right-wing campaign. Though I, I would say that uh, Andrea replies to this saying, Meloni was not elected on the ground of a pro-Ukraine campaign, 
not only every poll since the war in Ukraine showed it, uh, not only that, but every poll since the war in Ukraine started has shown a majority of Italians not wanting to send arms to Ukraine. Anyway, JKJK continues that, um, you know, elements of the GOP have been critical of it, etc. Um, and Germany's political establishment uh, relented repeatedly in the face of caution, and the most hawkish elements of the Green Party have only received support for it. Which is all to say, I think, that, you know, the kind of um, support for that there is kind of a democratic legitimacy for support for the war in Ukraine after having been some democratic deliberation, uh, whereas this was not the case with Ukraine. There's perhaps an analysis to be done of how the Ukraine war has acted as a point of ideological legitimization of new conservatism or interventionism after its discrediting of the war on terror. But that's an ideological critique, not necessarily one of emergency politics. Um, Richard yeah, R. So though, I, I, go, Richard. Sorry, let me just con- take this last point and then we'll discuss it. Uh, Richard R. in reply says, "I think the Bunga Boys and really Ashley got closer on this episode than ever before in terms of convincing me of the COVID to Ukraine thesis, because there needs to be a dispensation. Uh, excuse me, dispensation. Ashley called it devaluation. Georges Bataille called it expenditure. That is to say, in other words, that there must always be an excuse for why the very apparently." very apparent plenty of society cannot be evenly distributed and that that distribution cannot be questioned. As long as something trumps human freedom as a priority for social solidarity, we never have to change anything. Yeah, so I mean, I can't speak for Ashley. I think she was talking about something more specific than this idea that we have to, you know, that we need the um, the surplus has to be absorbed in some kind of um, ostentatious um, and dis- wasteful display, which in this case would be like, you know, pumping enormous quantities of armaments into a proxy war. I don't think that's what she was getting at with her understanding of devaluation. I was thinking she was thinking something much more specific in terms of the um, functioning of, uh, you know, the need to devalue assets as part of a way of needing to um, reboot capitalist accumulation. So a very kind of formal Marxist point more than the kind of um, idea of the need to uh, dispense with social surplus. But notwithstanding that, um, I, you know, JK, JK, JK makes some, no, JK, JK, JKJ. I just read it right. Sorry. No, I I just typed it. However, you know, it's a bunch of, it's a series (laughs) of just kiddings. So anyway, whoever they are, um, you know, they may, I mean, they make some good points, some good challenges, right? I don't see really the, you know, I don't really see democratic deliberation though on the question of Ukraine. It's been most publicly kind, you know, there is, there have been um, significant kind of street protests in, you know, Austria, uh, sorry, in the the Czech Republic and in Italy, Um, but generally very little contestation. I mean, surely the point about Maloney is that it indicates that there hasn't really been real democratic contestation over the policy, that even the supposed insurgents, as they point out, you know, they've been folded into the consensus. Um, the only place where there has been kind of uh, some degree of public contestation uh, is, I'd say, maybe in the US. And that's more or less down to the controversy that is attached to the likes of uh, the kind of the Chicago professor, John G. Mearsheimer, who has kind of um, publicly criticized American foreign policy and at the same time has been, you know, bitterly kind of lampooned as a, as a traitor, a Putin stooge, all the usual things. So, I mean, I suppose I just read it differently and certainly kind of, um, you know, taking uh, an unpopular stance on the Ukraine war in Britain doesn't seem to me, you know, it seems to me to be very clear that there is um, that a kind, you know, a consensus is solidified in place. Now, obviously, it doesn't require us to be um, 
that does mean a recreation of the neoconservative interventionist consensus that has been locked back into place. And it's very important, I think, that that is part of it. But given the fact that Russia is made out to be a much more kind of menace, a much more direct menace to countries in Europe than, say, the Taliban were or Colonel Gaddafi was, um, that emergency politics and the fact that it's filtered through into um you know the energy crisis and standard of living crisis makes it makes the politics of emergency more relevant here right so it's not there are claim about the fact that one emergency substitutes for the other isn't that they operate on directly the same lines as if you know ukraine requires everyone to sit at home and work on zoom the way the lockdown did but rather it's about the fact that our political systems have legitimated themselves in the aftermath of covid by reference to defending us from putin and supporting the Ukrainians against the Russian invasion. And it's that need to legitimize themselves through emergency in the absence of any kind of ideological politics, emergency substitutes for ideology, right? So that is the claim, more than the um, the idea that there's some kind of perfect parallel or symmetry between the two policy paradigms. Yeah, I mean, I think I made the point, maybe not particularly clearly about legitimation being really central um when we recorded with ashley but i think the, the way that richard r puts it is really interesting that there must always be an excuse for why the very apparent plenty of society cannot be evenly distributed and that distribution cannot be questioned i think we have had a sort of a shift longer term from this like th- a legitimation where it's like this is legitimate like this is good for everybody um social democracy like everybody's getting something out of this to now it's like the question of legitimacy isn't actually relevant right now because we've got a war going on we've got a pandemic we've got fascism we've got environmental catastrophe so there is a i think i don't want to try to come up with a term for this like post-legitimation crisis but there is something there i think around this new model Maybe that's it. Maybe I'm just rephrasing what you were saying, Phil, that it's like the movement from ideology to emergency, which means that it isn't a question of a kind of a a balance between different ideas or or compromise or any kind of conflict that way. It's it's that these things are completely off the table. And if that you want to call that a dispensation, a devaluation or a kind of a movement in the basis of legitimacy, then you know, all those things perhaps point to roughly the same thing. And it's good that um, we're, we're, we're getting closer to convincing Richard R. Of, of this. So maybe there are many others who are almost similarly convinced. Yeah, I mean, I have to rethink about, you know, I, certainly if they are different, you know, one emergency after another, they certainly have different logics, as Phil was saying. I think the important thing is precisely that it allows elites to back back any claims for um, higher living standards or greater freedom or whatever it might be um, because there's this thing going on. And I think we can't dismiss the role of the media and hypermedia in this, in that it allows, it, it's a means to keep this new thing in discussion all the time that has to be, it's kind of the new kind of sovereign that everything needs to be made in reference to, ah, but COVID, Ah, but Ukraine, um, no matter what it is, and it's a way of kind of paralyzing any discussion. And I think a lot of it does kind of play out on media and the kind of authorities response, um, elites response kind of across the board is also kind of a, a, a mediatic, um, a, a kind of mediatic strategy. Uh, I think we shouldn't ignore the fact of how much they themselves are also wrapped into the kind of media cycle of things, especially as they have become so um 
focused on on communication. It's not for not for nothing that some people refer to it as communicative capitalism today, whether you buy that kind of concept or not. All right. Um, I think we will leave that here. Thank you once again very much for all your questions and comments, including maybe even especially the critical ones, especially if you find creative ways to insult us. That's um, always, always welcome. Uh, we'll be back with another Alpha bonus bonus, uh, probably in about a month or so's time. So early March. Um, and we will, um, so we'll, we'll do this again sometime soon, uh, but we will be back with uh, regular episodes on a variety of things, um, as usual, next week. So we will catch you then. Bye-bye.